ballad of the landlord. Landlord, landlord, my roof has sprung a leak. Don't you remember I told you about it way last week? Landlord, landlord, these steps is broken down. When you come up yourself, it's a wonder you don't fall down. Ten bucks you say I owe you? Ten bucks you say is due? Well, that's ten bucks more than I'll pay you till you fix this house up new. What? You're going to get eviction orders. You're going to cut off my heat. You're going to take my furniture and throw it in the street. Mm-hmm. You talking high and mighty. Talk on till you get through. You ain't going to be able to say a word if I lay my fist on you. Police! Police! Come and get this man. He's trying to ruin the government and overturn the land. Copper's whistle, patrol bell, arrest. Precinct station, iron cell, headlines in press. Man threatens landlord. Tenant hell, no bail. Judge gives Negro 90 days in county jail. Good morning, friends, and welcome to another episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard every Wednesday right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio at 11 a.m. I'm sure most of you, or I would hope most of you, have heard by now that we have a housing and eviction crisis in this city, and my guests today are here to speak on it. And I'm going to let our guest introduce herself. Hi, my name is Kristen Reed. Um, I am an organizer with Richmond for All. And can you tell us a little bit about Richmond for All and what you guys have been up to. Yeah, I would love to. So Richmond for All is a member organization in the city of Richmond that is really committed to bringing people together to talk about some of the progressive changes we'd like to see in our city center. Um, We have been um, up to a lot of things this, um, gosh, it's been like 10 months now since we formed. Um, And one of the things we've been really following lately is the eviction crisis in public housing. Right. So you've been going to their board meetings. You've been reporting on this ongoing crisis. What are your observations on RRHA's actions under Damon Duncan and his response to resident and community outcry over the recent mass uh, evictions in Creighton? We've been really disappointed in RRHA's um, Board of Commissioners response and also the administrative response to this crisis. We first mobilized... um, in concern over the publication of the five-year fiscal plan for RHA back in, I think it was June. We had a lot of people out expressing concern about a proposal that um, laid out for uh, mass demolition of the six major public housing courts in the city of Richmond. It's home to about 4,000 people. And so this really is going to be something that um, accelerates and aggravates um, a housing crisis in a city with record high evictions on a national scale. And what we found is that um, as we've express concerns and as we've tried to engage with the Public Housing Authority, the um, administration and the board have been very, very, very slow to recognize the very real crisis that uh, is facing some of the family members who live in public housing. And we've seen a real reluctance to engage with residents and with the public about policy that really is about governance of a public good. Public housing is a public good, and residents have a federally protected right to governance of that housing. So we've been very concerned with their unwillingness to kind of honor public process around some of the choices that they're making. And can you expand a little bit on what has happened recently here in case anybody's 
been living under a rock and doesn't <laughs> actually know what's been going on in Creighton. And then also uh, the development with Fairfield. One of the things that happened in the last week is we saw record high eviction cases come up on the court docket here in the city of Richmond. So I think it was um, Tuesday maybe of last week that we saw 52 cases from Creighton Court that were the launch in court of eviction proceedings for those residents. 52 cases is actually a pretty big percentage of of Creighton Court residents. It's a very, very high number of evictions just for one day in court. And as we looked at the docket, we started to see a pattern emerge, which was that um, Fearful Court, Gilpin Court, a number of the big six public housing Um, courts were on the docket with large numbers of evictions. So we expressed concern on social media. And one of the things that we speculated was that this looked like preparation for demolition. We had reports from residents in Creighton Court that units were being warehoused. And what that means is after somebody's been evicted, no one is then placed in that empty unit after the um, original family is gone. We have a very long wait list for public housing here in the city of Richmond. There are many, many people who are housing insecure who need those spots. So warehousing units we take very, very seriously. That's effectively denying someone housing. And if it is the case that the housing authority is warehousing units in anticipation of demolition, they're actually circumventing federal process. We have a right to know before um, houses come up for demolition. And we have a right to give feedback and um, engage with the housing authority and with our, our federal officials on those issues before they actually happen. So We were very concerned that um, the Housing Authority was evading public process, and that is something that it seems like um, judges are agreeing with us. One of the things that we saw when the cases from Fairfield Court came up into court, um, the the judge opted not to honor those eviction notices. The judge um, uh, ruled that RHA was in violation of common practices and regulations, and they sent those, those cases back to the Public Housing Authority and asked them to kind of get their act together before they brought more evictions before the court. Oh, at least somebody's got some sense going on. (laughs) What's been the response to your reporting on this? And what have been the response of, say, some of the fifth district candidates, for example, because city council is going to have to weigh in on this sort of thing at some point. What are you hearing? So city council appoints the RHA board members. And so we really do see this as a council issue. And we're very happy to see two of the fifth district candidates respond quickly. Nicholas Da Silva and Stephanie Lynch um, both issued statements on um, the eviction crisis. De Silva actually held a press conference um, in front of our AHA headquarters. So we were really encouraged by that. We also have seen a massive, massive outcry. I think in 24 hours, we gained 600 followers on Instagram, which is a really a, a big jump. And all of those people were messaging us and saying, what can we do? This is incredibly concerning. Many people who had lived in public housing who understand what this means to families, many people who live in public housing now who are worried about their own housing security, we're reaching out very quickly and and looking for a solution. Been heavily involved also in covering the Navy Hill deal. So the administration and the developers say that this is not going to affect neighborhoods like Gilpin Court, Jackson Ward, Highland Park, all of these things where um, a large concentration of poverty exists, a large concentration of African-American residents live. I don't think you believe that, do you? I don't believe that. So many people who are associated with the Navy Hill Development Plan have come forward and said, no, 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 these are completely separate entities. These are completely separate plans. They're unrelated policies. It is true that RHA's board is not leading the 
development project around the Coliseum. But it is also true that we are under a, a citywide redevelopment strategy, and both of these are components of that citywide strategy. If you look at the independent market value assessment that RHA had contracted for its properties, part of what you will see is companies are coming in, they're making estimates of the value of RHA properties like Gilpin Court, like Creighton Court, like Mosby South, that put those properties in relation to adjacent properties. We know that Gilpin Court sits directly adjacent to the 80 block TIF district that is part of the Navy Hill Redevelopment Plan. And in fact, RHA properties are set to be transferred to private developers as part of that deal. So we we are simply recognizing a pattern that exists citywide and we are we completely reject the notion that these are separate strategies. This is a single redevelopment strategy overall for the city of Richmond. Do you ever think, this is a speculative question, obviously, <laughs> do you ever think that our city administration, no matter who's elected, is ever going to stop putting shiny projects over people? I think that if we elect uh, officials whose power comes from a grassroots base, then yes. The problem that we have in Richmond and in Virginia as a whole is we have people who gain elected positions through strategic partnerships with entities that are not aligned with public interest. So people become very, very um, dependent on political and financial partnerships that don't serve the public. We need elected officials who are actually going to govern as part of the power of the people. And that means running elections in a fundamentally different way. In our last few minutes here, let's talk about the importance of standing up and advocating for people in your community, uh, whether they share the same struggles as you. What does that mean to you and Richmond for All? Well, one of the things that we say at Richmond for All is um, your fight is our fight. We actually believe that we don't live single issue lives. And so we don't pick single issue fights. If you are lacking health care, that's actually going to affect your work. It's going to affect your family. It's going to affect your access to transportation. We just, we reject the idea that that single issue fights are going to get us anywhere. And so when we look at people in our communities or in adjacent communities who are struggling with issues, one of the things that we work really hard to do is understand how our issues are related. So we've worked very hard to turn public school teachers out to public housing fights. We've worked really hard to build bridges with environmental activists who maybe live out out near Roanoke, but who are fighting pipeline construction that is being led by the same people who are leading the Coliseum Redevelopment Plan. And part of what we found is that people really respond to connectivity. They really understand that they share interests. And that, I think, gives us a lot of potential to build more collective power as we are willing to kind of stand up for one another and recognize that our issues are all really one central fight. How do you recommend that a normal, regular person who's just hearing about this through picking up a Richmond Twitter feed mm-hmm. or they just so happen to, you know, peruse Richmond.com or whatever, and they are just blown away mm-hmm. by this? How do you express to those folks how they can get involved and really encourage them to do so. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of ways people can get involved. And we really prioritize at Richmond for All having like a low bar to entry. So if people are curious about these issues, they can engage with us on social media and start to learn more. If people really want to meet the people who are doing this organizing and see the people who are fighting these battles, you can join us on November 12th. We're going to be at City Council. We'll actually be there a little early at 430 talking about the issues that matter to us. So everybody's welcome to 
to join us there. And if people are really interested and really engaged, we're a member-based organization. So we invite people to come and join us. Um, we have new membership cohorts we're welcoming in all the time. And so I think there's a lot of ways people can engage based on where they're at right now. Excellent. And how can people reach you on social media? So everywhere we are Richmond for All. So on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, we're at Richmond for All. And then we are also at richmondforall.com. Perfect and simple. Yep. Excellent. All right. Well, before we completely wrap up here, do you have any last words, final thoughts on this housing and eviction crisis that we have going on, things that you might want to let people know? Yeah, I think I'd just say that um, these crises, we often develop some really euphemistic language to talk about the policies that we're developing to um, confront poverty. And so we are really trying to push people to be a little bit more honest about the stuff that we see happening around us. So I, I really want to invite people to remember that everybody needs safe, accessible housing. And just because the public housing stock that we have in our city right now is in incredibly imperiled um, conditions, doesn't mean that the right response is to bulldoze and leave people homeless. So, um, you know, these, these policies disproportionately affect Black Richmonders. And one of the things we really believe is that our Black residents in Richmond have a right to a city that their ancestors built. And so we want at Richmond for All to really say, if this is a city that's going to actually be for everybody, we're going to have to have some more honest conversations about the outcomes of the policies we're putting forward. Thank you, Kristen, for taking your time to visit with me. us today. It's great to see you. It's great to see you, too. Thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen, please introduce yourselves and uh, kind of tell us how you were involved in this situation. My name is Ben Teresa. I'm an assistant professor in urban and regional studies and planning at v ECU. And I'm also the co-founder and co-director of the RVA Eviction Lab uh, with Kate, Professor Kate Howell. So uh, my entrance into eviction came about a year and a half ago or so, coincided with the national eviction project, the Eviction Lab at Princeton University um, and Matthew Desmond's work, which really kind of elevated the conversation, put a national spotlight on eviction. It also uh, highlighted Virginia and Richmond's position within eviction. As as many may know by now, Richmond and other cities in Virginia uh, do rise to the top in terms of being very high evicting places. And so that's where our work kind of entered into the stage. Uh, hey, uh, my name is Omari El Qaddafi. Uh, I'm a housing organizer in the city of Richmond. Um, I sit on the housing chair of a social justice coalition called Community Unity in Action. And around, uh, I guess around the fall of 2017, uh, part of that work was us organizing the community to uh, call for new leadership at the Housing Authority after uh, years of uh, mismanagement, misallocation of funds uh, were identified in that community or in that complex, uh, that organization. And then uh, I think around a year and a half ago, uh, spring of 2018, I'd assisted Emily Badger from the New York Times with her article uh, highlighting Richmond's high rate of evictions and some of the work I think through the RVA Eviction Lab with uh, Ben Teresa and those guys had shown that the housing authority had a extremely high rate uh, in comparison to other private landlords in the city. Uh, and so right now I am in a project called the Virginia Housing Justice Program. Uh, I work with Legal Aid Justice Center as a housing organizer and we collaborate with Central Virginia Legal Aid Society and also Virginia Poverty Law Center to uh, address Richmond's high rate of uh, evictions and also housing instability in general. Uh, yeah, so that's where I am right now. Right now we are uh, actively involved with trying to get 
RHA to change some of its policies and practices for the better that would help lower the eviction rates overall in the city. Oh, and welcome back, Omari. I think this might actually be your fourth time on this show. <laughs> yeah, something so. like that. <laughs> All right. We're always glad good to have you. Good to be you. back, yeah. yeah. You guys do good work. Thank you. So do you. Thanks. That's why you're here. Appreciate you. Ben, could you give us a little bit of uh, local and national eviction statistics uh, for our listeners who probably don't know how bad it is in Richmond and maybe explain a little bit about how we got here. The picture uh, nationally, and um, this comes from the work of the Princeton Eviction Lab, um, and Matthew Desmond's work, uh, who, you know, for the first time did collect a uh, national database of evictions. Uh, Several states aren't included, but it gives us to date the most comprehensive picture of what eviction looks like um, across the country. And it indicates, you know, eviction rates nationally are two to three percent annual eviction rate. And so by comparison, Virginia's eviction rate is about twice as high. And then when you begin to come down to cities like Richmond, we're looking at about a 11% annual eviction rate. So what that means is on average, more than one out of 10 renters is evicted each year from their housing. And then what's interesting and important to note is that uh, eviction is very uneven. It's not equally distributed across all parts of the city, across all different sectors of housing, as um, Omari noted, of course. And so when you dig in deeper, you find neighborhoods and different segments of housing that'll have double or even triple that even even Richmond's very high eviction rate. So you're looking at a level of churn of 20 to 30 percent um, annually in these in these very small geographies. And of course, that's incredibly destabilizing for the individuals and families who are facing eviction, but it has much you know wider wider impacts beyond families uh, who are actually being evicted. But that level of instability affects neighborhoods, communities, schools, to the extent that families are homeless because of that, there's all sorts of mental health, physical health uh, implications. You know, one of the main things that Matt Desmond's work emphasizes, and of course that people understand working on the ground very well, is that uh, eviction is not just a result of poverty, but it actually fuels poverty and impoverishment itself, that it actually reproduces inequality and housing instability. Who does this affect the most? Well, you know, black people. I mean, there's... uh, There's not very many poor white people in the city of Richmond, you know, so when we're thinking about this, it is a continuation of systemic inequities that have existed in the city for a very long time. Amari, can you explain to our listeners what's currently happening in our public housing projects? Yeah, so um, I guess particularly it's pretty uh, noticeable in the Creighton Court uh, public housing uh, community where we had received information from the housing authority that has showed that in the past, uh, well, since before June, they they have not had a, a new lease signed in Creighton Court since before June. And uh, what we had noticed was that reports were coming from the community that it seemed like a lot of evictions were happening there. So this is something that we had been noticing late September up until like the uh, first two weeks of October. We were getting a lot of reports from the community saying that, hey, they're leaving these units over here vacant. We don't understand what's going on. You know, people are saying, oh, I I saw like 20 people evicted the other day. So um, 
I had reached out to the housing authority and had asked them, you know, what was going on over there and uh, what was the progress on some of the recommendations that uh, myself and the other three law firms had suggested that they implement to address their eviction rates. Uh, We had uh, originally met with them at the beginning of July and had consistently been reaching out to them to see what updates there were. And a little before the middle of October, they had let us know that they hadn't really done anything to implement the recommendations that we had uh, sent to them. And that's what brought us to October 21st, or was it 22nd? It was that Monday when there were 52 cases from Creighton Court going into General District Court for eviction. And so that was when, you know, we alerted the community to this to, you know, heighten the awareness of what's going on, because what it looked like is that units were being left vacant in that community and no new leases were being signed and also a high rate of eviction. So it kind of seemed as though there was a, what would amount to a de facto demolition occurring over in that area. So uh, being that we don't have any information that suggests that a demolition application has even been submitted yet for Creighton Court, uh, it kind of seems as though they're taking the steps you know, ahead of that to get the units vacant so that the uh, co-community can look like it's uh, less inhabited and therefore they would have the, uh, you know, motivation to go ahead and demolish. And these Creighton evictions, so they were for, what, $50 sometimes? Well, yeah, I think 80 was, bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, really small amounts that could be worked with, right? Right. I think it was an average of about $150 uh, was the judgment. You know, and when we think about eviction, it's more than just, oh, this person was unable to pay their rent or this person, you know, just chose not to pay their rent. But there is a reason for that, you know, and it's all related to, you know, housing costs. It's related to your job access, your education. You know, what job is it that is available to you that would allow you to pay your rent? and at the same time pay your childcare costs and also your transportation costs. So, um, you know, I've done work in transportation access also, and there was some suggestions that came out of the Anti-Poverty Commission report uh, some time ago, and it said that we needed to expand transportation. And with our last, you know, iteration of uh, transportation enhancements, we saw from Uh, the VCU Center for Urban and Regional Analysis, they said that there was even less access to transportation for 22% of low-income families in the city of Richmond with those so-called enhancements. So when we're thinking about evictions and just rent burden, we have to really look at it, you know, look at the whole forest and not just look at the tree, you know. You know, the eviction diversion program that it was uh, introduced into the city, it's a great program for, for those that would be eligible for it, but it doesn't it doesn't address you know the underlying causes that are there you know uh, illiteracy rates in the city you know lack of childcare and things like that that are really driving it. How does one qualify though for the eviction diversion program and is it widely known that that's a, an option? Well, one thing, one of the suggestions that we had gave to the housing authority was that they market the program to. Uh, their property managers and to the tenants. Uh, I believe that 
one of the, I guess, critiques of the program is that uh, you're supposed to have to be able to demonstrate that you have the ability to pay your rent moving forward. So my sense is that if you don't have income, that it may be hard for you to be eligible for that program. Yeah, and I think uh, to Amari's point about, you know, the benefits of the eviction diversion program and who it's really going to help, it's going to help people who are already in an eviction scenario. So it's not going to um, prevent the flood of and, and the underlying conditions that would precipitate an eviction situation for people. I think one of the real values of the eviction diversion program talking about, you know, reproducing inequality in eviction is that it may prevent people from getting an eviction judgment on their record, which is a huge barrier to finding future housing. Um, and so, for example, if if you're evicted and have an eviction judgment, your choices of housing have dramatically narrowed in, in, in the city. How do we mitigate the underlying problems, though? How do we start tackling the root causes that get a person to a point where they are on the verge of eviction? Well, I definitely think that uh, transportation access is, is an issue. You know, Richmond was ranked what, 97 out of 100 cities some time ago uh, for transit access. You know, also the recommendations from the Anti-Poverty Commission report did say that we needed regional transportation. There are some people who would say that with the latest enhancements to to transportation that, you know, that's a step towards regional transportation, you know, with the the post line and whatnot. Uh, However, if that, that comes at the expense of us having to pull service back from the transit-dependent neighborhoods in order to uh, be able to fund that, that post line. I don't think that we're really going in a, a positive direction, uh, not for transit-dependent residents. Of course, there, there's, you know, all, all sorts of other things. There's a lot of projects that are coming, uh, economic development projects that are on the horizon that are introducing uh, housing to the city of Richmond. What we're finding is that much of that housing that's being proposed, whether it be through uh, housing authority redevelopment plans or, you know, the housing associated with the uh, Navy Hill District Corporation's uh, Coliseum plan. Uh, we're finding that, you know, some of those rents are, you know, $1,000 a month for a one-bedroom or $1,300, $1,400 a month for a two-bedroom. And those are just not going to be affordable for the populations of people that we're describing or the, the households that we're describing. Yeah, I, I think that's those are all really important points. And I, and I think that when we talk about eviction, it's really important to keep that wider, wider context about how many different uh, sources of instability there really are for families and trying to make rent. And so this what appears as a housing problem is, you know, just as Amari is saying, is a problem of transportation access. It's a jobs problem. And, uh, and, and so many others. And so I think that what we'd really like to see is we'd really like to have, in particular, where we can have the most traction in our public housing authority and our other nonprofit affordable housing providers is can we have them model anti-eviction practices? Can we have them display a set and, and develop a set of practices that would begin to reduce evictions? Because that's that's the mission. The mission is stable housing, affordable housing. And so many times kind of affordable housing is not synonymous with stability, but those are between our public housing 
authority and our nonprofit housing, affordable housing providers, that's where we can sort of immediately have the best route in to make, or, or we'd like to hope so, to make those kinds of those changes and those kinds of commitments to anti-eviction practices. And, and I, I also think that there is a, a certain responsibility or a lot of responsibility that lies on, you know, our policymakers. There's a lot of, you know, what what's come to my attention, what, one thing that I've been paying attention to lately is publicly funded gentrification, if you will. There's a lot of developers that may come to the housing authority or whoever else to get bonding, to get bonds for their projects, you know, and there's, they're getting, you know, 15 million here, 20 million there. Um, I think um, in the case of Navy Hill, maybe like 300 million there. And if our policymakers are allowing private entities to get these benefits that are, you know, public benefits, you know, then I, I think that the public that currently exists in these localities in the city of Richmond, they should really be benefiting, you know, and and it should not be to the benefit of, you know, more affluent people who they would like to, you know, lure into the city. So I'm not off base thinking that uh, you think that this whole Navy Hill Coliseum project is tied into the RRHA's plans. Well, I I do kind of think that they are the plans, as far as housing goes, it, they don't look that different. I think around July of 2017, the former CEO of the Housing Authority had, you know, he held this this real estate retreat off in one of the Housing Authority commissioners' uh, law firms. They, they held some all-day retreat over there, and suddenly when they came out of the retreat, they suddenly had this idea, hey, we can redevelop the entire public housing portfolio and, you know, do this private, public, you know, investment thing and, you know, turn them into mixed-income communities. That seems to be the same plan that's going on with... Uh, with, as far as housing with the Navy Hill plan, um, he, uh, that same CEO also did. He is the affordable housing consultant for the Navy Hill plan. Uh, and so what, it's the same, the same type of distribution of, uh, you know, rent rates in, those, uh, in, in the public housing plan as well as the Navy Hill plan. And there is a, a heavy reliance on units that being built that would be, you know, one and two bedroom units. I don't think there's any three bedroom units being proposed for the Navy Hill uh, project. I could be mistaken, but I don't believe that there are any. Yeah. And then uh, there was a, a market value analysis that the uh, Housing Authority had commissioned for uh, all of its uh, developments. And it also had a heavy reliance on uh, one and two bedroom units. Uh, they 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 mark. They say it's it would be able to lure in uh, uh, empty nesters and uh, professionals with uh, childless couples and, and things of that nature. Which and, says to you, white. Well, it, white and professional. Right? <laughs> that I guess at those rental rates that I'm seeing, uh, more than likely it would be. Uh, less people of color uh, inhabiting those units. Um, but I think more importantly, it says that there won't be a lot of uh, families with uh, multiple children uh, right. living in those units. 
No, I don't think that's what they're marketing them towards. And also, they're using T.K. Somanath, right, as yeah, a, yeah. a consultant. Yeah, and and, mm-hmm. and he is the uh, the former head of RHA that was forced to resign in disgrace. Correct. Right, and you know he was forced to resign after years of people observing that the policies that he was you know, putting forward and the the programs and everything that they were not to the interests of the community that he served. I think around September 2017, he had said that he would be using uh, evictions as a, a crime prevention tool in the community. The question was asked, well, what would happen to the the children that live in those households, and his answer was, oh, well, the foster care system or law enforcement would have to take care of them. And so that was just indicative of the type of concern or, or lack of concern that uh, the organization had been demonstrating with, the, uh, with its tenants. And that was the reason why we said, hey, there needs to be new leadership in there. And this is now the the consultant, the voice of affordable housing for the Navy Hill Project. Right. So, I mean, we we could only expect that, you know, that same type of, you know, mentality would, you know, exist in the housing for Navy Hill. What is affordable housing? I mean, they're basing this, um, the AMI is what, on the regional, Right. right? And so what do we consider in Richmond actual affordable housing. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking about the uh, proposed Coliseum redevelopment, I don't really think it's a it's appropriate to talk about the housing that's being proposed in there as a public benefit or as affordable housing, at least if we talk about it, as you say, in meeting the needs. The right. real need is below 50% of AMI, and then, of course, much lower for public housing. Um, residents. That's where the real need is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a surplus of units at over um, 60% in, in Richmond. And so I, I think that it's actually better understood that this proposal is, for all intents and purposes, just an addition of market rate supply of housing, which is fine. Supply, those units will probably be rented and it's fine to add supply, but that's not, that's not a benefit um, in terms of where t- to meet the need. Right. It does nothing to tackle our actual problem. Correct. Right. I actually um, think that it exacerbates the problem. There was a someone had asked the question of the Navy Hill District Corporation, you know, uh, what would be the impact on surrounding communities? And they did say that there there could be some potential impact to Gilpin Court, which is not even a half mile away. There's other people who live in homes or homeowners that are in Jackson Ward who would likely be impacted from, uh, you know, whether it's decrease in, in parking or the rising tax assessments and, and things of that nature. So, and I, and I think that it would put a lot of pressure on the Gilpin Court community if there are plans to redevelop that community, which, uh, you know, I, I think there is an underlying plan. It's been, you know, mentioned in there in the Housing Authority's annual plans. And they also did submit a, a 
Choice Neighborhood Planning Grant, which was denied uh, for Gilpin Court recently. There is a plan to redevelop over there. So if this market rate housing goes up inside of, uh, you know, less than a half a mile away, that would put pressure on whatever redevelopment effort occurs over there in Gilpin to, you know, also have those same market rates over in that area. Also, I would say that um, we're just, you know, bringing to the conversation that the evidence shows that the research shows that there are spillover effects outside of TIF districts on property values. So the, to the extent that we are concerned about, you know, nearby districts like in Jackson Ward, um, Gilpin, that there could be very real effects from property value increases. And so, I mean, these are this is always one of the challenges with TIF districts is that for a TIF district to be successful, the property tax value has to increase within the within the district, but that district, of course, is immediately to adjacent to other neighborhoods. And so the research definitely shows spillover effects, um, which can place pressure on long-term low-income homeowners, uh, renters who may face uh, increases. The other thing I also wanted to say is the one thing that intensifies all of these local conflicts over land use, over housing, is that the federal government over the last several decades has really abdicated any role in providing affordable housing, particularly for public housing communities. And so nationally, the deficit in just the capital expense for public housing is on the order of, I believe, like 50 to 70 billion and increases at about $3.4 billion a year. And of course, in Richmond, we know that there's significant capital needs for all of our public housing communities. And, and so when the federal government doesn't fund these needs anymore um, or, to, or to the level that they're needed, this intensifies the pressure for the city to deliver. But the city is constrained in in many ways and so it intensifies these lo- local conflicts there's a role for the state to play but the state provide also provides little to no uh, resources for at least for public housing and so you know these conflicts sit, sit within this broader context of real needs but I also point out that I think the last report maybe put at put the capital needs for public housing enrichment at maybe 150 million mm-hmm. I'll just I'll just note that that's a lot of money for Richmond, but on the scale of the propo- other proposed projects that we're looking at right now, at the scale of Amazon headquarters, seven hundred and fifty million dollars that just sailed through the state general assembly, just sailed through seven hundred and fifty million dollars. So there's uh, a commitment of resources that have to be made, and and they are being made, but just not to the needs of people. Yeah, I, I would agree that the co- the commitments are being made. Is you know, like I said, uh, people are, are constantly coming for the past few years. It seems like it's been an uptick in uh, bonds that have passed through the housing authority in this city, and the developments that they're going for. You know, they they just are not really meeting the needs of the existing residents of the housing authority, and, and I think that that's a it's a real shame. You know, it's. Because essentially, it's like they are using the credit card of poor black people in order to build, you know, their developments with with very little risk. Black residents will not be able to move into those uh, units. So every time we talk about redeveloping the courts or housing projects, deconcentration of poverty, that phrase is, Mm -hmm. you know, bandied about. But is that really the answer? Like demolishing communities? And displacing people, what is that actually, what purpose does that serve instead of 
you know, preserving and repairing these communities? Yeah, I think that there, you know, if people were very more intentional about addressing the needs of the people that are most vulnerable in the community, I, I think that there there is a way forward and a better way to do this. I think that when we, particularly in this city and in this state, we have, you know, the Dillon Rule and and everything about us uh, annexing land and things of that nature. Uh, We have a lot of restrictions. The the surrounding counties to Richmond, there's not very much uh, multi-family zoned land uh, to put up new uh, housing complexes. So when we see these plans from whether it's from the housing authority or whether it's from you know a private developer or the navy hill district court and we're you know taking up land that could be used for uh, more modest income households uh, to get housing and we are you know making it more market rate affordable that is going to lead to some displacement you know, there is, you know, spillover, not just from a, a TIF district, but just, you know, we see the gentrification that's occurring in, in Blackwell and Manchester and also greatly in Church Hill. And so if we are pushing those residents, you know, out of Richmond, essentially, where will they go? You know, and if we don't truly have regional transportation at this moment, how will they get access to jobs? You know, are we displacing residents out into wherever they, they may go that, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, context of the housing authority, you know, if they're giving vouchers to housing vouchers to move out of their communities, where will they go and what will the access to resources look like in those communities? So I, I think that there is the there is a chance that this could lead to a high degree of instability in the region, you know, when it comes to us displacing a lot of uh, poor people from the city. Uh, I think that there's a potential for uh, crime to go up in certain areas. I think that there's a potential for homelessness to go up in in the counties uh, and then all of the other you know, effects that come from that that been alluded to. There's a lot of social ills that come from eviction and housing instability. When I was a student, I had an advisor who said something that, or wrote something that I thought was really um, important on this issue, which is that poverty is not a function of the spatial arrangement of poverty. So people aren't poor because of how they're arranged of where they live in in a place. Now, it certainly might be the case that not having good transit access, that can make things worse, right? But when you, I think one of the things is when you look back, it's the Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority. And so when you look at the history of where public housing was cited in Richmond, a lot of these public housing complexes were coupled with larger scale land clearance efforts and redevelopment. So for example, when you go back and look at the original plans that the Public Housing Authority was developing that ultimately led to the clearance for the convention center, the Coliseum, and all of the other publicly owned facilities and surface parking lots and structures that make up this area that we're talking about for the Coliseum. The plan indicates that the more than 500 black families that lived in that neighborhood would be relocated or 
some portion of them, not all of them, would be re- relocated to the 17th Street District redevelopment area, which is now uh, Mosby ar- around that area. Mm-hmm. And so redevelopment was linked with you know displacement and linked with public housing. And, and so those public housing complexes, many of them were designed, in fact, to isolate, to um, r- you know racially, to, to control black people and to make land more valuable for other purposes. And so that, that makes the current moment very complex because I don't really see, there's been a lot of talk about kind of the blank slate of Navy Hill or the blank slate of Shaco Bottom or any of these large-scale redevelopment projects that have been proposed or on are under review. But those aren't blank slates, right? Mm-hmm. We are now in, it's just the current moment of a 60, 70-year process of land development. And one thing, you know, when we think about, you know, the racial aspects of it, nowadays, you know, we think about oh, public housing and You know, we think of it as, oh, this is some place where people can pay low rent. Although we know that it's it's based on income and there are people paying upwards of $800 a month. Some pay $1,000 a month and live inside of public housing. But this is actually, the, the HUD program itself was really created as a form of reparatory justice. You know, after the first housing act and the GI Bill, Uh, the first housing act of 1937 and then the gi bill following world war ii a lot of benefits were given to white families that's how we got our suburbs you know the suburbs did not just appear there you know they were publicly funded to provide an oasis for these white families to you know start to make some uh, upward economic progress in their um, communities and in their families and so The HUD Act was, it actually is a result of civil rights era legislation after Dr. Martin Luther King was killed and there was a a lot of, you know, rioting and whatnot all across the country within, you know, months of him being killed. The Civil Rights Act was passed and and soon thereafter, the the HUD Act was passed, you know, after iterations of a, a couple of other acts. You know, so what we're talking about here when people say that, oh, the HUD's not going to be around forever or, you know, they're not funding this forever. The the original intent of the HUD Act was not just housing. You know, if you look in the regulations and you really look at what the intent of it was and the provisions there, you know, it gives opportunities for, for training, for business development, for resident management of those communities, which we see that's a, uh, it's actually occurring in some places like Pittsburgh and Charlottesville and Chicago. You know, residents are being are using those HUD benefits to build up their their business uh, acumen and for their whole community, and they're they're taking control. But here in the uh, the capital of the Confederacy, there's such deeply rooted you know racism, and there's such inertia against uh, empowering black people that we just see it as oh, that's just some place where people live. You know, that's just housing, you know, and it's okay, you know, if HUD chooses to uh, no longer fund it. But this is actual civil rights legislation. And so for us to just simply allow people to be treated, you know, the way that we're seeing people are being treated in public housing with not having heat, with waters busting, uh, water pipes bursting inside of their units, and with people being denied a lot of their legal rights inside of public housing. I think it's a real travesty, and, and people really don't look at it that way. And it's because the, just the history isn't 
frequently told. Yeah, and my uh, friend and colleague, Akira Drake Rodriguez at University of Pennsylvania, has studied Atlanta public housing extensively. And one of the things that she talks about is kind of flipping that narrative about public housing as spaces of disorganization and, and, and all of these negative uh, narratives about public housing, but how actually, for example, the first public housing projects in Atlanta were spaces for black people to become uh, organized and to exert political power Mm -hmm. well before they even had the right to vote. Uh, So these were really important, more than just housing, right? hmm? Uh, Public housing is a space for political mobilization. And that's another side to the eviction problem that I don't, I think is really detrimental is when you have that level of instability, it continually undermines any kind of political uh, mobilization and political organizing. I think to your point about, you know, this, this effort, you know, this, this sort of systemic effort to undermine black political power. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if when you think about right now in our city, I think pretty much like the 7th district may be the only district left where there is a a black majority uh voting block, you know, and largely that's because of Creighton Court. And if Creighton Court is demolished and there's no effective intentionality on you know those residents being allowed to move back into those uh, redeveloped units then what does that look like for black political power in the city what does that look like for the school board over there you know um, (laughs) when you have all of these families that are leaving I guess back to just public housing and you know how the, the benefits that are supposed to be there one thing that really struck me as disturbing is that there is no intention on, well, I guess it, there's no proactiveness on including residents of Gilpin Court into the development that's happening less than a half mile away from them. There's, you know, some, a lot of advocates in the city will talk about, you know, Section 3 benefits, which uh, that is a section of uh, the HUD Act that gives uh, prioritization for contracting opportunities and business opportunities to low-income residents and particularly for residents of public housing. And if, if there were some intentionality towards realizing those, uh, those goals of the HUD Act, then... We, we would very easily be able to leverage some of that Section 3 uh, funding, those opportunities to include that into the Navy Hill plan or that plan and any other plan, actually, that, that occurs in the city. There we would have a continuum of, of business development for residents of public housing and low income residents uh, across the city. And I think that's one thing that's that's really missing. Um, when we think about, you know, justice and, and equity um, in Richmond. I th- you, you mentioned something about the word reparative. Reparatory I, justice. Yeah. yeah, I think any any development in Richmond is going to encounter this uh, problem and this this legacy and bringing a reparative frame to planning. So I just met a very promising student, Rashad Williams from University of Minnesota, and he's trying to articulate a theory of reparative planning. What would it mean to do a kind of planning that would take into account and meaningfully address these these kind of extractive legacies um, that we're talking about in, in housing and in development? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, 
I know they, they do throw around, you know, MBE participation with uh, the Navy Hill plan um, and, and other plans, is, which, you know, that's more of a, it, it's not really equitable for just to say, oh, we're going to accept minority businesses because, you know, all minorities are not poor, you know, all minorities don't live inside the city, you know, uh, but there is a large population in the city that are direct descendants of people that were displaced through a lot of discriminatory land use actions. Um, some of them, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, with the Coliseum and, you know, the, the highway being put down over top of uh, Jackson War. And we're not really doing anything to intentionally uh, repair that. That's right. I mean, these, these are knowable questions that are researchable. I mean, I, I spent a few couple hours of my time in the VCU archives looking at this stuff. So those questions of who was impact, can we find them? Can we address that? Mm. That could be done um, mm. with a little a little work. That is fascinating. I like that. <laughs> I, we, we have to wrap. We got to wrap on that. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, later. <laughs> yeah, well, this conversation is definitely far from over. Mm-hmm. And though we're running short of time, unfortunately, in this episode, I hope to have you gentlemen back uh, along with your partner, Kate, yeah, yeah. That'd uh, be as great well. To bring Kate um, into this conversation. Because this clearly is going to be an ongoing, long drawn out issue. But before we go, I would like to talk about or have you guys speak on the importance of standing up for your community members, whether they share the same struggle as you or not. I think organizing like you do, Omari, is a very important thing. And how how do you reach out to other Richmonders who are apathetic or don't know that this is going on? How do you rally support behind your cause here and get more folks involved so that, I mean, I guess my point is here, the more voices we have talking about this and shouting at our local officials, the better. How do you reach them? Well, me personally, I I do try to find uh, commonalities between different struggles. Um, We've been really successful with um, uh, building relationship with um, education advocates in the city, you know, and that really stemmed from uh, from uh, me me really posing uh, the question to them, you know, um, I guess, you know, making an assertion to them, you know, it's not enough to just support students while they're inside of school for eight hours, you know, but what are we doing to support them when they go home? You know, um, if we're concerned about them having heat in the schools, are we also concerned with them having heat in inside of their homes? And if we're concerned with them getting to school on time, you know, what is it that's occurring in their home, you know, as far as the stability of, of their homes to get them to school in time? So that's been really successful. Uh, and that, that's just one example. But it is a, an intentional part of the work to um, draw these parallels um, between different struggles. We've been really successful at it. It is something that we uh, we really focus on. Yeah, I would see say that uh, our role with the RVA Eviction Lab and and my work is to support the work of people uh, who are most impacted by these problems. To support organizing work 
Um, and that's principally through doing research, providing data, which I've seen in other contexts, having data paired with on the ground organizing be extremely effective. And so that's kind of where I, I see my role. I mean, in terms of kind of, you know, bridging connection, uh, you know, making people aware of, of this kind of thing. I think that one of the things is that all of these problems that we're talking about, housing instability, and, you know, what we're talking about is is people not having democratic control over the things that most materially impact their lives. And that is a issue that if it hasn't, if, it, if you don't see that that affecting you, it's just because it hasn't affected you yet. True. And that people think, well, if they own their home, they're stable. I think in the last 10 years since the financial crisis, you know, home ownership isn't as stable as people thought. And so it's in everyone's interest to ensure the widest, deepest, most meaningful kind of democratic society and democratic arrangement and decision-making process that we can have. And so I think that's, that's important. I mean, that's, that's a hard task. Uh, that's, there's lots of barriers to making those kinds of connections. Um, but to the extent that you can help people understand that, you know, kind of having control over um, the most meaningful, uh, the most important, you know, pieces of people's lives, having real democratic control is to the benefit of everyone. I'm glad you brought that up because that is actually, that that is something that messaging that we can put out to, well, that we do put out to various uh, segments of the population, you know, whether they're, they may be someone who, uh, or a population that is apathetic towards, you know, poor people. And they, they do see that, that a lot of people think that, oh, that's, that's a function of whatever deficiency that person has, you know, in their personal life or those people's personal lives. But no one can really disagree with, we just want them to have more inclusion into the development of their community. You know, we want them to be able to uh, create change and for their voices to be heard. You know, we don't want people to be shut out of housing authority meetings. You know, we don't want bonds to go before city council that claim there was no opposition. But when there really was, you know, no one can can disagree that uh, we want people's voices to be heard. You know, and that is a message that everyone can get behind. I'm going to leave it at that because I don't think it can get any better as a way to end it. So how can folks get in touch with you via social media, email, websites? Right. So our RVA Eviction Lab, if you just Google that, you'll find uh, we have a Web page with some of our reports um, and links to our emails. Uh, we're also on, on Twitter. Um, so reach out, out to us that way. Um, yeah, you, you can find a lot of uh, good information that I put out on my social media outlets, which is our Leaders of the New South. Uh, on Facebook, it's Leaders of the New South Community Council. Uh, we also do some uh, organizing with uh, Richmond for All. And uh, they also, Richmond for All also is on uh, every social media outlet. So I, I think those are two great uh, resources and ways to stay connected to the work. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and your voices and your expertise and expect me to holler at you again. Sure, I'll be back. To talk about this. Thank you so much. much. Thank you listeners for tuning into today's episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. Mania, 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 mania.
Flint still has dirty water, and now New Jersey does too. Hmm, maybe somebody should look at ours. <laughs> RPS is fully funded this year, but we still got to fund next year, so let's start working on it. And as always, Richmond is still most certainly racist, but we're working on it. Talk to you next week. If you'd like to continue this conversation or start another, hit us up across all social media at RVA Dirt, on our website, rvadirt.com, or email us at info at rvadirt.com. RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, 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 is created and co-hosted by Francesca Lee Davis and Melissa Vaughn and is recorded in the studios of WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Executive producer, Melissa Vaughn, censorship button tester, Francesca Lee Davis. <laughs>